0: This is Kevin Couchman with the podcast, Get This. It's the show about things people love. I'm coming to you from the Corona quarantine bunker here in upstate Manhattan on April 2nd, Thursday, April 2nd, in the foul year of our Lord, getting fouler by the day, 2020. And I'm joined by the great Tom Block, artist, writer. Tom, how are you?
1: I'm great. Well, I mean, you know, I'm Corona great. I'm doing okay. I'm not ill. <laughs> So I'm good. Corona great
0: is, uh, is a new standard.
1: Yeah, I mean, I must confess, Kevin, I have an inner hermit that is emerging that actually is making this uh, acceptable. Um, on the other hand, I seem to be experiencing, you know, mild symptoms, hopefully neurotically virtually every day, but I, I'm so far so good. I go outside into the neighborhood here and there are all of these
0: trees that have started to bloom and I get a little bit of a sniffle and I immediately start to go into my head and I have to remind myself, the the statistics say I'm probably not going to get it. Uh, we are self-quarantining here. We're going out a couple of times a day for very basic things. But uh, yeah, it's it's very easy to, easy to get into your head right now.
1: Well, you know, I don't know how to... I don't know what the metrics are. I know that the media plays an incredibly unhelpful role in this. That uh, is to say I, I'm not even watching the news. I can't even watch right. the news anymore. But I do. I read the paper and I look online, you know, um, and it is a, a constant weight and, um, you know, just trying to keep things together, I think, uh, as we get in this for the long haul is going to be important to just make sure you're doing the things you love and hopefully being around or near people that you love Uh mm. I'm trying to tune a lot of that out cuz you're right i mean yeah you know the news is not the i think the some the statistics i've read is that 99.34% of the people who get this will mm-hmm. not die. right i
0: it, mean it can you know, lead to lasting damage we don't know what the final what the fallout is for people who who get it uh but yes it's it's really hard to know which way is up, and this is not to diminish this at all. I'll probably put this out today or tomorrow, and I don't want to diminish the seriousness of it. We're taking it very seriously, uh, but at the same time, the way they lead isn't typically with stats; it's with hard numbers, and right. I don't know. Uh, very few people have any education in statistics. On I never took a course in stats, but I know enough to to do a, to crunch a few numbers myself at home and to go. Mm, I don't know. I've, I've played blackjack and you have better odds beating the house at blackjack than you do of, of getting this at this point. But again, not to diminish this at all. And, and certainly the fallout has just been intense. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. It, it's really a matter of knowing how to assimilate it for each of us in our lives. And then uh, dealing with, like you said, the fallout. I mean, it's. Um, I'm very fortunate in that there's a book I've been wanting to write. I've opened up my studio again. I'm working very, uh, doing a lot of work on my art festival, you know, kind of structural work. So I feel extremely productive and creative, and I think that's really important right now. Um, Yes. Well, of course,
0: if if I can, Tom, interject the this is the podcast about things people love. It's almost impossible not to lead without Corona, but you, you this is the second time you're on the show, and the last time you were on the show, you were talking about the connection between mysticism and art. And what is it today that you want the theme of the show to be? What do we want to talk about?
1: I mean, that's I—that's the theme of my creativity, you yes. know, how to bring mystical ideas together with contemporary society. And, and certainly, I mean, you hate to say this is the perfect chance to exercise those muscles, but I mean, everything is the perfect chance to exercise those muscles, but it certainly is a tremendous challenge. And then... Um, Trying to keep that kind of perspective, I think, is, is really what it's about. And, and so the book I'm writing is exactly that. It is basically uh, an exploration through stories and through mystical tales and my own tales just of how this whole thing interweaves, though not always obviously so. Mm.
0: Um, what What is the nature of the book? Do you have a title?
1: It's called The Launderer of Souls. <laughs> wow.
0: That's a good title. Okay.
1: Oh, I shouldn't have said that because I can't copyright the damn thing. Oh, a- that's all
0: right. I don't think anybody's going to steal that. <laughs> that's a very singular idea.
1: That's that's fast. I didn't.
0: I think I knew you were writing a book, but I'm I'm very curious.
1: Well, I'm really deep in it now because I'm I, I have I have plenty of time, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, this is something that I
0: in in while I was sleeping last night, I was kind of half in and half out this morning, and I had the thought: what a cruel thing that they should call this the novel coronavirus for all of us authors because we're not writing ours (laughs) it's torture you don't have an excuse the thing is literally called the novel coronavirus and you're not writing Gatsby you're at home watching Tiger King (laughs) over and over
1: again yeah but you you actually are writing writing the book so I am I am really working on this I've got a draft I'm, I'm working through the second draft um yeah I mean it's it's uh It's not a down-the-middle narrative. It's just a bunch of of little stories, and it's based on books like uh, Fernando Pessoa's book, of Disquiet, or a lot of mystical story tales in medieval times with just a series of anecdotes and stories uh, like Rumi or Shemzi Tabrizi or Mm. uh, Conference of the Birds. So they're really a collection of a lot of different stories, and the the connection is not immediately obvious. Mm. So, for instance, in, in the book, there's two little, two tiny little stories called the launderer souls which are um which are really the the background the basis of the whole thing but it's it's not it does it's not a riddle book it's just supposed to get you thinking and open up a lot of questions more than at the end you go oh i get it you know it's not that kind of book
0: well for people who don't know your background if they haven't heard the first episode maybe go back and listen to the first one with tom but you know we'll make this a standalone episode as well you're you're an artist a visual artist a painter
1: I was originally a visual artist um, and a writer. I mean, I have published five books, so I kind of did them both at the same time. But I'd say my career was more I was more known as a a visual artist. Uh, And more recently, I've been an art producer of the International Human Rights Art Festival, which is kind of an ideal of mysticism in action. Mm -hmm. So what does mysticism look like when it's in action? It looks like uh, active, you know, active legislative uh, spiritually based action. It can take place in art. It could take place in, in politics even, or any part of life really. Mm. Um, so I've kind of that everything I do comes out of that desire to put mysticism into action and bring it into society.
0: And that festival takes place every year.
1: The festival is an ongoing series of different events. We actually, uh, it does go for a week in the East village in December. We also do interim events, which we've, obviously right now i had to cancel a bunch of them yeah Uh, we have a publishing arm um and i just issued a call for creators of justice literary awards so we're going to be um giving awards an essay poetry and short stories um that are activist themed and represent our values you know not we hate these people because but Mm. very vulnerable very honest and open and um forthcoming in terms of their desire to change the world or to look at the world where can people find that all the information is on ihraf.org I-H-R-A-F.org. and our calls for entry are there um, and all our information and you can get a look at what we've done in the past and our, our publishing arm our literary journals there so it's all collected right there on that website That's- i-h-r-a-f
0: dot and when did you begin that when did you start that
1: uh march 2017 so it was our first uh the full festival at dixon place down okay in yeah Minnesota. i know that
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah i
1: developed uh, some work there wait so it's
0: how many i mean how many years have you done it
1: so we're i mean we're moving on towards three years it's, wow we're very new
0: okay yeah that's great what was the uh, inspiration for that? You're, you're you're getting uh texted. They're hitting you up.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's probably one of my daughters somewhere in the world is getting <laughs> a FaceTime. That That's all right. That's okay.
0: It's cool. Uh, yeah, it's well, live well, radio. Hey, there, there you go. Live to tape. Get this podcast The show about things people love. And uh, we also have a bit of a mystical bent here. I don't know if you heard the last episode, Tom, but the most recent one that I did was with a fellow who runs a float tank. In New Jersey, just That's outside awesome. of Philadelphia, and I am really anxious to to go and take a float. Uh, I meant to this summer, didn't get around to it, but at some point, I, I intend to.
1: Is this like the you know the Lily experiments? Or mm-hmm. the, uh, so you're supposed to take some kind of substance uh, to get in
0: there? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't personally do that. My first time, certainly. I think it's more about having an experience in the tank, the sensory deprivation. And apparently it's incredible. You just float in perfect stillness. And yeah, interesting. I, I must miss- say
1: that brings up a certain uh, sense of anxiety. I think about <laughs> going <throwing> in there. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Me too. That's kind of why I want to go and do it. Good uh, for you. Well, you
0: know, fears. Indeed. So this, uh, right, I'm not claustrophobic. Uh, so this
1: <laughs> festival, uh, what inspired you to start that? Well, like I said, you know, when when I first started working in painting, I was painting around mystical ideas. So I was uh, exploring mystical ideas in paint and specific ideas, like uh, 13th century mystics and Jewish, Christian, Muslim in a relationship. And then I really wanted to look at what mysticism in action looked like. What I found initially was that people that try to take mystical uh, values. And let me just define mystical values: are the timeless values of understanding the unity of all creation. That's very basically and trying to become part of that unity and understand well,
0: slow down slow down the timeless yeah. values of trying to understand the unity of all creation that's mysticism right.
1: so you, you would not look at you know beneath the male female beneath the black white beneath the Asian uh, Anglo beneath a rock and a frog you would see a underlying unity and understand that everything deserves the same respect because it is all a representation of God these sound like Led Zeppelin lyrics. See that? Maybe they yeah. were. Maybe yeah. they were. Mystical.
0: I, I think. Well, they. I, we know for a fact they were. I just think it's funny. I think we could make, uh, you know, a Led Zeppelin song out of what you just said. Fantastic.
1: Well, I will say this. Um, I probably shouldn't say this. It's no naughty talk. But uh, there definitely have been studies that show that um, hallucinogenics like uh, mushrooms or acid give an opening to that spiritual understanding. Mm-hmm. It's a shortcut, and it doesn't last. But it is an opening to that kind of understanding. So presumably a lot of these musicians in the 60s and 70s were writing these songs did have access to certain energies and Mm. were exploring and talking about
0: them. Yeah, for sure. I think it's famous, uh, famously so. The great comedian Bill Hicks uh, had that bit where he said, if you're against drugs, uh, you're anti-drugs, I want you to go home, take all your albums, all your records and all your CDs and burn them. Because all those musicians who made all that great music that's enhanced your lives throughout the years – Real high on drugs. Uh, you know, this idea that there's nothing positive out of it is, of course, nonsense. Everybody has to investigate it for themselves, and I wouldn't proselytize for it. You have to be safe and careful. Uh, but for sure, we're we're definitely pro that on this podcast. And in fact, every episode comes with a psychedelic portrait from the great Peniel Collada. Uh, and so if you go to getthispodcast.com, you can see what she did with Tom's uh, most recent Portrait and Tom, you sent me what is it? It was artist with fence, and it's you on the A train or some train in New York.
1: Why were you? Um, I had a, I did a dance theater piece, and and we had this little white picket fence symbolizing the struggles of the suburbs. So I was taking the little fence down to Dixon Place, actually, where we did the piece. Yeah, Um, and you know, it just seemed the the fence is so. It's so evocative, the little Mm. white picket fence. To me, it's evocative of a a strangulation of the American normalcy, of the narcosis of American suburbs. But, hey, a lot of people love it, Kevin. The white picket fence is a (laughs) –
0: well, I'm getting shocks of visions from two of my favorite films when you mentioned picket fences. One, Jaws has picket fences. Uh, They even mention it. The kids are karate chopping the, the picket fences. I think is a line in Jaws. The other one is Blue Velvet. And the use of the picket picket fence in Blue Velvet, yeah. It's a very Central American metaphor, isn't it? So you're cradling a picket fence on the A-train
1: going down, going downtown. E-train. The E-train,
0: the E-train, all right.
1: They connect. Yeah, all right, cool.
0: Well, so one thing that is striking me as you talk about mysticism and your uh, festival is this idea of bringing it into action. So I think that is very curious because I think a lot of people tend to be pedantic about it. You can read about it. You read Rumi and it puts you to sleep and you knock out and then life goes on and it's very romantic and then you go back to your job uh, shuffling paper around, right? So how do we activate these practices and bring them into a modern, I mean, a contemporary context?
1: Well, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question because, I mean, that's kind of like what, um, you know, what I've been thinking about for 25 years. Um <laughs> I think it's quite. it can be something as small as standing in line, and even though you might want to take the person in front of you and throw them to the ground, not doing it, mm. and mm. instead being kind to them, even though they can't get 17 cents out of their wallet for 20 minutes, you know what I mean? Right. It could be sitting in a car in traffic and not going crazy. I mean, there's <clears throat> a spiritual teacher will tell you every moment is a moment, has something to teach you. Yeah. Now, we yeah. usually ignore mm. that. But then to go a step further, it's OK. Can you walk past every homeless person and acknowledge them as human and perhaps even uh, spiritual leaders themselves? Because historically, uh, the mystics have been essentially homeless. they begged for all their food and they haven't wanted to have possessions. You know, it's just it's kind of a consciousness that will bring that will affect your actions. Then you go further. Still, how much of your energy and time can you devote to? creating a warm and open space around you, right? That's really mm. all you can do. Mm. Um, mm. As opposed to, you know, walking darkly through the streets and spitting on little girls or whatever we do in New York <laughs> City sometimes. <laughs> Yikes. Well, sometimes they deserve it. <laughs> exactly. See, that's the point. Even though they deserve it, you say, here's a quarter, little girl. <laughs> so you're, you're,
0: you're saying this from the luxury of being in Washington, D.C., which you are. Present. Currently,
1: I'm in the suburbs. right? Of Which it, maybe it's
0: cutthroat in a different way from New York City. But New Yorkers get a reputation for a reason. It's a bit uh, it's bump, bumper sure. cars. Bumper cars, yeah. for sure. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, exactly. And, and, and as you go through the city, and I mean, I do in non-coronavirus times, I'm living in Queens. Actually, very, my apartment is extremely near that Ground Zero Hospital in Elmhurst. I'm like a five-minute walk from there. So um, I'm fortunate to have a place to uh, escape to in suburban America. But again, those become tests. So how do you walk past a homeless person? You know, I taught a course um, in mysticism, essentially, at Dixon Place. And we would talk about things after reading, uh, uh, you know, Meister Eckhart, a 13th century mystic, or Shuang Zhu, a 2,000-year-old Chinese Taoist. We'd read these, then we'd say, okay, in context of what our life was, this week, uh, uh, someone came in and she said, I was walking down the street in the Lower East Side and two guys started to have a fight. So we talked about that in terms of how can you react? What do you react? Uh, You walk by a homeless guy. It's the 17th homeless person you've seen in five minutes. How do you react keeping these values in mind? And it it doesn't, it's not like there's an answer. Oh, you have to do this. It's just keeping it in mind. Maybe you smile anyway. Maybe you say, hi, I'm sorry. I don't need more money. I just gave the other 16 guys a dollar, you know, whatever. But, um, we just we always talk about it in context of how can it affect your uh, day-to-day life, you know, these ideas. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a notion of uh, trying to find the you and the them, right? That you're not we, – we're, we're way more similar than we're different. And comedy, I think, for me, serves a lot of this function because I think status is the culprit of a lot of this. I'm not like that person.
1: You mean economic, racial, ethnic, religious? All of it. All of it. Yeah. yeah,
0: status. The the monkey pecking order, right? I went to this school. Uh, right. This does not
1: concern me. This person is out of network. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's, that's right. That's a, a, a narrower, maybe less informed way. Um, and it's interesting you would mention comedy. The last event we did before the lockdown wasn't even in a comedy, uh, which comedy can really open you to ideas. But with you know, stand-up comedy—you always run the risk of some pretty lowbrow comedy. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Actors' comedy, comedy is by like improv, or it's by its nature, it kind of goes low as common denominator. So we really had to be careful about that. But when it's when it's self-deprecating, and we had a very diverse group, when they're talking about their own experience of trying to fit in in America, whether it was uh, an Iranian woman, an Uzbeki man, uh, a Middle Eastern man—I mean, you know. Then it, it's very Palestinian man. Uh, it's very it's it's really is opening to an audience, and I love using comedy and activism, but it is a fine line. Yeah, um, it's tricky. Comedy tends to be pretty aggressive and
0: hostile, uh, even sex, when, violent. Yeah, my, of course, yeah. So yeah, it's not for everybody. But I, I was just sort of suggesting that for for my purposes, I mean, comedy always kind of cuts me down to size and uh, restores my some sort of an ego balance for me. Because, I mean, you're living in New York and it's like you – it's very easy to get this outsized ego because you're you're in this constant state of war, this heightened battle to just sort of survive and to, to make rent and to – right? Yeah,
1: I know, but I mean, yeah. you, I, I frankly, myself, I lose so many battles. I don't know if I have my problem with an outsized <laughs> ego. It's more of a pea-sized ego that I have a problem with. Well, you know, this
0: is probably our stars, isn't it? <laughs> like I don't know I don't know what yeah we're gonna fall back on astro- astrology here but so you, so you started this festival uh, you know uh, three four years ago do you have is it is it just you kind of leading the p- the thing you must have collaborators and others involved
1: we are it's starting to uh, really um, collect people you know when you start uh, something like this and it's a, it's a vision it's a vision um, you know there's a vision there no one will listen to you you have to produce what's called proof of concept you have to do the damn thing yeah so darn thing so people can see it so now we're at a point where we're sort of in our third or fourth year and people at a pretty high level are being like wow i want to help this i have a two or three people that are helping me strategic plan fundraise work on a pitch deck i mean people that are at a much higher level in terms of business and nonprofit strategy um the head of the nonprofit management master's program at columbia has oh, gotten oh. introduced to a lot of people fantastic so, Yeah, we're solid enough so that we're really starting to attract that kind of collaboration, which is exciting. Now, we can't fundraise right now. Mm. So I'm spending Mm. a lot of time uh, raising, doing what they call VQ, raising my visibility quotient, Mm -hmm. which is online, which, you know, this had happened 40 years ago before the Internet. I mean, this would be extremely brutal. The Internet really gives us a chance to Mm. to have a lot of interaction and do a lot of, you know, living, really. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, I don't know what they did in 1918. The- uh, they wrote letters, I think. They wrote letters. Well, that had its... They
0: did. They had pigeons <laughs> sending, sending I mean- letters to each other. Yeah. No, you're right. It, we, we should count that as a... Uh, that's definitely in the pro column right now for what we're dealing with. Uh, this is one of the reasons that I don't like the phrase social distancing, because I think... I just don't, I don't like the phrase. I think it's a little, a little much because there are m- many ways to connect with people socially right now. Um, I understand.
1: It's physical distancing. Yeah. Right.
0: I mean, you and I are, yeah, we're, we're creating a podcast episode right now that uh, some number of people will hear and we're, we're being social. Uh, very, very strange. Kind of a weird. It's a very weird time. I don't think anyone comes out of this the same, certainly. And I think uh, if you stay above ground, you're gonna be stronger out of this, and I think that that's a, a silver lining for me um uh, I'm trying to focus on the positive things,
1: mm. yeah I think there there are positive things um but I think there's a lot of people that have been really taking a kick in the head, you know, yeah, and' sure. I'm fortunate in that I got a roof over my head and food in the fridge so i'm not I'm not in that situation, yeah, um,
0: yeah, I might have a fridge over my head pretty soon. <laughs>
1: Well, that's just your wife to be. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. Yeah, and I'll deserve it for sure. Uh, so this is great. So you know, I want to kind of peck at like the the beginning of this mystical turn for you. So were you raised in a spiritual tradition? Were you were you a strange? I mean, I'm going to ask a question that uh, this fellow asks on uh, on a podcast. The name's escaping me right now. Uh, oh rune soup gordon i think it's gordon white i think, it, I think that's his name uh he, he has a very famous podcast where he talks about magic and mysticism and he has these wonderful guests on it. It, it it by coincidence he used to be a housemate of uh my screenwriting partner in london uh and he his first question is were you a weird kid <laughs> so i'm going to i'm going to poach him right now and say you know were you a weird kid cuz not a lot of people end up in this mystic place
1: That's true. I think anybody that grows up to be an artist was probably a weird kid. First of all, let me just say that. I mean, you know, we're not known for fitting in very well. If you're if you're an artist of investigation, I mean if you're doing flowers and and making a killing in some, you know, gallery down on Canal Street, you're probably normal.
0: Mm. You
1: just are able to paint flowers. Um, (laughs) for money. Right. But um Hmm. I guess I was. I mean, you know, but I, this this turn really happened when I lived in Spain. I lived in Spain for three years and I was painting. Um, and I kind of felt like the act of painting was great, but uh, it wasn't enough. So I just started to try to bring these ideas in. And it was also during a time, another hermetic time, when I was doing a tremendous amount of reading. So it all kind of came together then. How old are you? Uh, I moved to Spain when I was 29. Hmm. So I lived there from 29 to 32, and that's where I began my painting career. And that's really where I began really? to the mystical ideas into um, the painting. Uh, you yeah, began I, painting at 29? No, I began painting at 26, but I mm. began my career three mm. years later. Okay. The first shows I had were in Madrid, Lisbon, these little towns in western Spain and eastern Portugal. Is that... That seems to
0: me atypical. I don't know that world. I mean, is that usual? Is that a normal uh, trajectory or
1: to start that late? Right. No, I fell into it. Um, Hmm. I fell into painting through a series of fortunate accidents. And then, uh, the minute I began drawing really, I was like, wow, this is what I love to do. And I, I had some catch up to do in terms of technique and understanding media and all this. But, um, yeah, it can be done. I think it's – unlike music, you know, you can do that. And especially now with the contemporary visual zeitgeist, it's not like you have to draw like Rembrandt. I do not. I can draw <laughs> realistically. I can draw well and beautifully. I've done a lot of drawing. But that's not – that kind of technique is not the basis for art anymore. Mm. It's important to be able to draw and draw well. But, you know, obviously with abstract art and everything else. Of course. You know, of Yeah where can people find your work your visual uh, art my uh it's all cataloged on tomblock.com t-o-m b l o c k dot com. There's my whole uh, my personal art careers there. I love stories like this because it's
0: it's inspiring. I think a lot of people get out of this system, uh, this almost kind of Prussian industrial system of education. Even if it's very benign, and you're you're fortunate enough to to go to private schools, there's this idea that it's like, oh, now I'm done with my education, and now I'm this thing, and it's like, ah, uh, no. There's there's room for that for that turn coming out of the first act or in the second act or into the third act of your life. Yeah, you might your calling may be out there yet. You don't have to be the hot published author at 20 or at 30 even. You can you can start your novel when you're 45.
1: Yeah, and I think in our educational system Unfortunately, you know, two or three people are designated when they're eight years old as talented because they can draw a car that looks like a car, and everybody (laughs) else is told they don't have any artistic talent. Right. Um, And it's it's all this kind of streamlining. So I was definitely in the category of you're not an artist type of person. Um, And those are hard messages to overcome. You know, they really become ingrained. All the stuff from our childhood, we we have to unearth, I think, and think about, and try to. Uh, shuck off you know because mm. we we internalize those and we just think oh that's who I am or that's who I'm not or you know mm. and you're not going to get a lot of support usually from friends or family you know you know when I started painting it's not like my family is I go is a great idea <laughs> they're like what are you doing you know you I was I had been a professional writer like what are you doing it was more like that so you were a professional writer
0: before you took up painting
1: I was a journalist, yes. Ah. I was doing feature writing, uh, freelance feature writing in, in sort of major newspaper publications. Right. You may have told me this uh, once before, but I'm
0: uh, trying to unpack this. So, But were you raised in a, a spiritual tradition? Were you raised in a
1: household that was religious? Secular. Secular household. Secular, I would say completely. I mean, hmm. Jewish, secular. No, I wasn't even bar mitzvahed. So hmm. completely. Yeah, I think it's because I found it on my own. I think when you shove things down kids' throats, they tend to turn away from them. Sure. And as a parent, I've been very aware of that and that my kids discover things on their own instead of dragging them to museums and making them eat gross foods when they're eight years old that I cook, you know, beans and things. So <laughs> Beans and things. They beans gotta, are, yeah, uh, fair enough. Without how,
0: them. You, and you have how many
1: daughters? I have two girls. Two yeah. girls. 15 and 19. How's that going? Great, my 19-year-old is on an organic farm right now in California, and she's basically living her life as it was. They've kind of sealed off the farm. She's in a commune of like 20 people, and they're farming. Wow. So she's doing great. My poor youngest daughter just had her uh, 16th birthday, and Mm -hmm. uh, sweet 16 quarantine, it's not really what every girl dreams of, (laughs) but we got through it. And she's, uh, you know, they're back in school online and everything, so we're doing the best we can. I I like
0: that for a show title. Sweet 16 16 Quarantine is a pretty good episode title, so I think that's a keeper.
1: It'll be a big movie in two years.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, we're reaching the halfway point of this episode. This is the Get This Podcast. I'm Kevin Kautzman. I'm with Tom Block. It's getthispodcast.com. It's a show about things people love, and we do interviews uh, everyone gets a psych- uh, psychedelic portrait from the great Peniel Collada. You can find those at GetThisPodcast.com. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And we are supporting this with donations. We're not running ads. I hope to never run ads. Uh, you can visit the website. There's a link. And if you subscribe, uh, you can get a psychedelic portrait uh, from Peniel yourself. So uh, check out GetThisPodcast.com if you want to support independent media and hear interviews uh, that you might not otherwise catch uh, in earnest, you know, serious stuff that's meant to be positive and uh, hopefully bringing some light into this world, which I think increasingly we need because the media is very negative. There's just endless uh, death, uh, famine, death, uh, terrible, awful. And we need to be informed, but uh I don't know. The tone is uh, kind of garbage. The level is very low. And I think, uh, well... Tom, you were talking about your daughter who is living in a commune in California. And that sounds like a pretty good life right now to me.
1: I would probably I trade talked, places. Talked to her yesterday. She sounded very happy. You know, <laughs> Yeah. Pulling vegetables out of the garden and cooking them for lunch and hanging out and going on <sighs> hikes and walks. And they're kind of sealed in there together. So hopefully wow. you know, it, the, the, the virus stays away from them. So I think she landed on her feet. I don't mean to pry, but how did she get there? She's doing a program called Woofing. Have you heard of that?
0: Can't say so I have. Wolf,
1: okay, no, it's it's for teenagers and twenty somethings. It's called it's working on organic farms, and you you basically you for room and board, you work on the farm. I think between four and six hours, not a lot, and then sure. you have the rest of your time free. And um, usually, there's you know some kind of community of these woofers and these small organic farmers get free labor and um there's a community of like-minded people some of whom are kind of drifters and grifters and some of whom are early you know late teens or early 20s so yeah wild the grifters probably love it i mean i'm i'm sure it's a great time they get to be the wise 28 year old on the- <laughs> sure <laughs> right 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 right
0: interesting uh so uh, is she taking kind of like a gap year
1: Uh, She referred to it as a gap life, so we'll see. This was second year out. She was um, a Mm. year uh, as a teacher in Israel, and now she's doing the farming. I I, I suspect she'll go to college, but I don't think she's on an immediate plan for that. I think that's fine. Yeah, I do too. I mean, you got to follow. If she ends up on a farm her whole life, I mean, who am I to say she's wrong? I mean, you know. Yeah. I think our standards are so narrow sometimes, but
0: it has to look like this again. It's that factory piece. One of my pals up in the neighborhood here who. I haven't yet got him on this podcast, but his name's Jack, and he's a, he's another a, a Jewish fellow, secular, as far as I know. I don't know if he was bar mitzvahed or whatever. But um, he's uh, from New York. Family has some sort of warehouse here. And as soon as he met me up here in the neighborhood and discovered that I'm from North Dakota, he could not stop talking about the West. The West. You're from the West. And I'm like, well, eh, you know, and he just he could not stop talking about it. And we we became pals over that. And it turns out that he he lived in a comu- a commune in the 60s and learned how to shear sheep and raise sheep. And that's his life. That's the life that he wants. He, and he goes out every year. He drives his truck. He, he spends time in Wyoming. He's got a place out there. This prescribed life of, you know, go to the school, get the job, meet the girl, you know, meet the guy, work for five years, try to say it's over. It, it's over.
1: Well, there's so much pressure. I mean, you know, we, we, there's so much pressure in our society. And that's what's so interesting about reading and, and getting really steeped in these mystical ideas is it's such a completely different perspective. I mean, they're just like, turn your back on societies, what they want, because that's a ship of fools, you know. Mm. And so uh, for me to constantly read them, it's almost like a medicine that I have to continue to take. Um, as I read them, it gives me a much wider and much more open perspective whether it's Shuang Zhu from 2,000 years ago or Thomas Merton from 100 years ago. or I mean, these are great thinkers who really opened up a lot of different paths and a very different way of seeing things, you know. Um, and, and sometimes quite harshly, they'd say, you know, to, to, to receive the plaudits of the masses is is denigrating to you in a sense because then you care about what other people think. And yet, if you're in the arts... You you want to receive the plaudits to the masses. Sometimes it comes with a few dollar bills attached if you're lucky. You know. So I mean, it's it's an interesting uh, just to have it in my mind. Again, I'm not
0: without a doubt. And I I think we get on because I also uh, have, have had this interest. And in my in my teens and my twenties, I was very interested in Gurdjieff and Crowley and whatnot. Uh, so you're, you're trying to get back to your story. You're in your mid twenties. You're living in Spain. You pick up. Uh, late 20s. Late 20s.
1: It really it started with a book called The Sufis by Idris Shah. Mm-hmm. So I was reading, I was on a sort of self program because I never learned anything in college. I mean, I have a college degree, but what a waste of time and money that was. But <laughs> I did it because, you know, whatever. The, mm-hmm. There was a food hall there I could eat in. And the bar had cheap beer. Yep. Um, a bunch of girls that wouldn't have sex with me. It was one of those kind of college careers, <laughs> you know, the standard. Right. Um, Where'd you go? I went to Vassar College, Ah. not not too far from you, upstate New York. All right, And um, so I started to then read all these things. I started with psychology, and then I was reading some uh, physics and some science books. And then I I just uh, picked up this book. I'd never even heard of the Sufis by Idris Shah. And it just blew open this hole in the sky for me. And then I just kind of went through the references he had. And then as you read in any subject matter – you know, you, you, uh, references kind of emerge and you know where to go next, right? I mean, through footnotes and through bibliographies. And then I just spent – well, I'm still doing it. I mean, um, so – What were you studying at Vassar? Oh, I have a degree in English and uh, minor in psychology, the usual – Sure. You mm-hmm. know. Indeed. I, I did a my thesis on Graham Greene, who I love. He's a great writer. but mm-hmm. He's not we're getting
0: <laughs> we're getting ready for an episode uh, with Michael Backinson, who's a friend of the show and an actor. And I didn't know that he that he was a Yaley. He's one of these guys. He doesn't lead with it because he's got good sense. And but he took two semesters of Shakespeare with Bloom, and I'm very excited to hear that uh, Harold Bloom. So uh, stay Thank tuned you. for that. Should be very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. T- speaking of mystics, I mean, Shakespeare is mystic in his own regard, isn't
1: he? You know, I, I he's beyond category. I think right. that's why we are still so fascinated with him and why in New York City in the course of one year, he's produced 50 or 100 times. Unbelievable. Different matters. So right. he's just beyond category or she or they or whatever it, Shakespeare is. Right. Thing. <laughs> right.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So you're at Vassar and then did you – but you didn't really – so you picked up the, the book at Vassar and then it was a few years later you married no, no. it to no.
1: – I picked it up when I was I, – Vassar doesn't connect to Spain. Okay, I understand.
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm just trying to get the chronology right.
1: So Vassar, it took me six years to get through uh, and then I um, moved to Boston, stopped writing, fell into art school. I was waiting tables uh, and then <laughs> I traveled around Europe with some money I saved. Uh, met a Moroccan woman on a train in Spain who was teaching French in a tiny university town in Spain. And then, uh, yada, 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 lived there for three years.
0: <laughs> you can just fill in the yada, yada, yada. That's like the end of North by Northwest when the train goes into the tunnel.
1: <laughs> came out the other end.
0: That's it. Those, those, uh, what was her name? Can I'm I'm
1: Rashida, Rashida mm-hmm. Maktari.
0: All right. Cool. Uh,
1: yeah. yeah. Also, yeah. Obviously. All, also what? Also secular. Uh,
0: indeed,
1: right. Yes. Muslim woman. Indeed. So I, was, I was I was well hidden from her family. Oh gracious. The so her friends were much more concerned about me being an American than about my religion. Is that right? Yeah. I mean they 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 hated Americans over there. I gracious. Mean, I mean I had friends and but but like she would tell yeah. people that I was American. I mean they'd meet me, they were fine, but they'd be like, What are you doing? you know? The junkie, the junkie.
0: Oh, wouldn't it be lovely to be an American abroad and not be reviled? Wouldn't that be? earn well, it. Hmm?
1: As a society, I think we earn that revulsion. I mean, we're yeah. every, our military in 150 countries in the world. Our drones are killing 90% of drone kills are civilians. I mean, it's a disaster,
0: all... isn't it? It's we have fun. earned it. Yes, indeed we have. And Absolutely. I think, our Americans... yeah, it's terrible. It really is, and I, you know, I just hope that out of this scenario that we're in right now, we can we can find some sort of way to renew the project. But I'm not I'm not optimistic. Uh, so
1: it's so ingrained in our in our personality as a as a country, you know, the the, the militarism and the and it's so ingrained we don't even see it. I mean, like yeah. back in the '50s. Eisenhower warned of the military industrial complex. Now we don't even see it. It's so completely
0: fuses. Well, of course, because it's become the military industrial pharmaceutical education university, you know, HR complex. It's all it's cradle to grave, uh, and you're complicit and no one's to blame. There's very little accountability at the highest level. So you can become a quote unquote public servant and not really ever serve and walk out with you know a multimillionaire. Uh, and and actually do horrible things uh, and not be held accountable. It's parliamentary democracy is fraught with problems, but it's a religion of its own. It's a cult. It's a secular cult of uh, of the state. At this point, I don't know how you look at it any other way.
1: Absolutely. And that's what, yeah, the state has replaced kind of spirituality in a way. I totally agree. And even God and religion in this country, yeah. And that's what Mark Talk talked about,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's a disaster. I mean, and th- this isn't us, uh, uh, whatever, uh, this isn't meant to be a polemic, but it. I think it does, in a way, tie back to that mystic idea because is isn't one of the other core mystic ideas is that it is in you. It's you being a, a microcosm of the, macrocosm of the totality. You have that God seed, that nature in you, and you just may not be listening.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, within yeah. and above are synonymous,
0: within and above are synonymous.
1: I mean, that would be the way that I've seen it most distinctly put, what you're saying, you know, by a, a thinker. Um, and you're right. And all mystics say, know thyself, you know the universe, right? Mm. Uh, and don't concentrate on the, the evil or problems you see in someone else. You know, don't weed in other people's gardens. You should be fully concentrating on how to make yourself better how to acknowledge the good in others instead of and the evil in yourself. I mean, this is you know, thinker after thinker after thinker puts this in different language, but mm. always the same, uh, the same idea. And
0: that's exactly what you're saying. Got to tell you, Tom, this sounds like it's going to hurt my bottom line. <laughs> it sounds like yeah, it's going to hurt.
1: hurt your bottom line, Kevin. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's going to hurt my business. Tom.
1: <laughs> business goes down, but you're right. you go to heaven or something. something. Maybe not.
0: Well, you no, know, I think, I think heaven is here and I think it's in your attitude toward the now.
1: Uh, yeah not acceptance and this is again talk about a, a good teaching moment I mean can we accept this extreme situation that has no dead you know no deadline right we could be a year and I don't mean to scare everybody the millions of people who are listening to us right now but indeed
0: I mean, yeah to get this bump
1: can, I mean who knows maybe it'll be three months but maybe who know you know I I don't you know so it's 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 uh, quite a test.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. You can you could look at it in multiple ways. You can freak out. It's not it's not going to help. There's this great comedian Joey Diaz who I really admire. Uh, he's a uh, Joe Rogan uh, inner circle guy, and Rogan thinks he's the funniest man alive, and he's so great. He went to prison in Colorado many years ago, and he's doing a lot of solo podcasts. He's got a pal. Uh, he calls him the Flying Jew. Uh, because he gets some wicked, wicked, wicked high and they have a great podcast, Joey Diaz, but he, he's comparing right now, uh, this situation to when he was in prison and he's telling prison stories and he's saying, this is how you get through it. And he's not far off. Uh, back in the day when he was in prison, he got, he got uh, locked. He was a cokehead, uh, coke fiend. When he got (laughs) locked up, it was for kidnapping. He kidnapped a guy and he had guns in his trunk. It was a, just a disaster. I mean, and he went away for, I think it was like four or six years, something like that. And uh, in his 20s, when, when you know, you were getting ready to go to Spain, this guy was slinging <laughs> rocks and uh, whatever it is. And he, but his stories, this is kind of what I meant about comedy, kind of bringing you back to a level. They would let them go to the store for 20 minutes a day at this prison this is a little you know any cash in his in his pocket and he talked about how he survived and and he's totally right it's we're not in that much of a different scenario from that of course it's not like being in a you know a high security prison but it's not that much dislike being in a prison in the 90s in colorado that's a little soft uh and he's got great advice about how you survive this so, uh, I, he's worth listening to. We're kind of in this lockdown. It's quarantine. Social distancing is a polite way of saying you're in quarantine. This is a
1: soft quarantine for sure. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's explicitly stated yeah. in mean, New York and down here. Um, yeah. And I think it's a, uh, it's a test. It's like, okay. So on, when you strip away all the divertis Mall, and I can't go to a show and I can't sit in the bar and I can't sit with my buddies, what am I, what's left, what, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah. um. I mean, any mystic would would love this situation. <laughs> would they? Oh, this would be way too much social interaction for them. They'd be <laughs> distressed to, that we're even talking. Are you
0: sure? I'm not so sure. Gurdjieff was all about the commune and all about society and sort
1: of living among people and living with people as the challenge. So, so uh, Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. You're right, because right, you, right. you do have to live with people, and that is a challenge. Hmm. A lot of the medieval mystics did remove themselves. They would go out literally into the desert. But Hmm. um, I Think then later on Sufism certainly was like look you can't And a lot of them. I mean they're like you can't remove yourself from society You have to be a positive force within society whether it's Marcus Aurelius or whether it was uh, you know Shuang Tzu or whatever Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I saw
0: a quote from Plato today saying uh, something to the effect of uh, if you don't involve yourself in politics you will be governed by people who are less superior to yourself.
1: Yeah, you know? Plato was kind of a fascist. Yeah, though. pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of his, his political thinking because I think he was like, there's people who are smarter and they should be in charge. And that's how you lead mm-hmm. on to you know Donald Trump saying, I'm the smartest person in the room. And I'm going to be in charge.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I
1: don't know. It just came to mind. It is interesting. It's
0: like you, you can have this attitude like, ah, I'm going to step aside and not be involved in politics. And then suddenly this whole world
1: takes place. But I don't know. There's there's hmm, there's room for yourself in society, right now, I I, in my activist world, I actually believe that true change is comes from outside pressure. So if you look at the great social movements of the 20th century, they were not politicians responded to them. But it was, you know, Mandela and it was Martin Luther King Jr. and They -hmm. were not politicians, but they were forcing the politicians to do the right thing. All politicians care about is getting their free shrimp and having a title you know what i mean so (laughs) they'll do the right thing if you make them do the right thing they don't really have any principles so so i mean as an activist i'm always like i don't want to be i want to i want to engage with and influence politicians to the extent uh you know one can in this society and certainly mitch schneider in the 80s i don't know if you know that name but he was able to personally influence ronald reagan to put a ton of money into homeless programs by going on these um and getting a lot of celebrities involved he would go on these hunger strikes in lafayette square across the White house and he actually individually got millions out of reagan for homeless programs so i mean you can mm. not you know he he sacrificed his life for that so there's always a matter of how much you're willing to sacrifice but um i think that that kind of pressure has to come from outside the political specific political spectrum
0: mm.
1: fascinating well and so
0: you you're an author of how many books have you written
1: well, I've uh, written eight. Five have been published. So I'm, I'm, I'm got. If we spend a year and a half here, I'll have three more finished. <laughs> what and what, in,
0: in sort of what? What is the subject matter they cover?
1: Well, four are kind of social philosophy um, nonfiction. Um, one outlines my model for activist art called prophetic activist art about engaging with society through mystical ideas and art. Uh, one is an exploration of how Ma- Niccolo Machiavelli. Influenced uh, influence American politics called Machiavelli in America. Um, one is called uh, Fatal Addiction, which is about how war and spirituality, violence and spirituality are linked in all religions. And then in all of them, the highest form of prayer is to kill for your God. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. What's this called? That's called a fatal addiction.
0: That sounds that, that sounds
1: great. What? Why on earth did you start writing that? What inspired? This is wild. I was so dis, you know I was so disgusted with not only nine eleven but but our country's response to it mm-hmm. as a it became kind of a religious you know a battle of religions and I was just like gotta hate religion and then I was like I, I want to quantify this I want to quantify my hate and disgust with religion so I actually brought together just a, a ton of research about how Violence in the name of your God is the highest form of worship. And even today, when you go to war, you—it's know, couched in, in the name of crusades and God and you know spirit. And I've heard this
0: before. Uh, this notion that—and of course, well, I was brought up Catholic. The—the
1: uh,
0: the sacrifice is meant to be a surrogate for that. The Mass, the transubstantiation, is meant to be a surrogate for that impulse. Right. Yeah.
1: But the real thing. <laughs> you're yeah, And think about who we're sacrificing, and I address this in the book, we're sacrificing children. I mean, 18 years old, 19 years old. I, it's sure. like this like, sacrifice of children goes back to Roman and Greek times and, and the Aztecs. I mean, and it's the same exact thing. And Without a uh,
0: doubt. I mean, and, you know, the two things that are going to uh, – I say red pill. I don't know what you want to say. But the two things that are going to wake people up the most, uh, you know, this year through to last year, uh, Epstein. Epstein married to this. I don't know how people look away anymore. The, the, how do you go back to having the scales drawn over your eyes? Especially, too, this is a period where there's no sports ball. Everyone in, in America is going to go through this period where baseball isn't going to kick into gear. Uh, basketball is over. Kobe is dead. There's a lot of, uh, intense psychological stuff happening right now. And we don't have that valve that to kind of, Shh, oh, baseball's here. Let's forget about Epstein. Never mind that, uh, uh, half of the world's leaders <laughs> were on his island over over x number of years and so he, true. it's crazy
1: well they killed him and then they, basically every editor in the in the country got the word came down that they're not going to cover this story it's pretty clear i mean you know without a doubt we do trump were friends down there i mean you know, but yeah, they didn't, you know yeah. whatever who, who sends i mean i want to be on that mailing list <laughs> right that says well it doesn't come down like that i understand it's got, it's like the way he died, you know, it, all of a sudden there was no guard there and the cameras were turned off and we don't know. And, you know, it, it, it that first guy that looked at him said he was strangled and they got a new corner in there and, you know, oh, man. um, I mean, it was so, it's so predictable.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah, of course. And lots of people said he's not gonna, he's not making it out of that place. There's no
1: way. Yeah. Trump and Clinton, these guys can't... They're all part of the same cabal, ultimately, no matter what their politics are.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's just... uh, What an insane scenario, too. Like, the United States is going through this incredible trauma... We don't have the guarantee of health coverage, health care. People are playing you know, paying. Young families are paying one thousand, two thousand dollars in premiums uh, for care that then includes an additional balance after you go in. You have to fight with the insurance insurance companies. There's this is total debacle going back 50, 70 years, and everybody's like, "Gosh, darn it, Trump!" You know, the the monkey in charge right now. He's to blame, and yes, he's to blame for a lot of things. But this is way more systemic. And way more ingrained and way more mob-like and dangerous than one person.
1: No, yeah, that goes to the fact that corporations are writing legislation. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the 40s and 50s with Truman and, you know, after World War II and all this. I mean, I don't know the full history, but I mean, there's just – we have much stronger corporate influence than I think Europe does. Oh, for sure. Which is why we don't have a social net, a safety net, you know. Yeah, bizarre. It's all about that line
0: going up, that weird snaky line needs to go up. Uh, you know, and wages need to stay steady or, or, you know, even fall in correspondence to cost of living. And that's how it works. Uh, and if you can get your chunk of that line, then you feel good. But if you, if you can't, then you're just what left out in the cold, this is going to be an awakening. I think a lot of people have to realize, uh, something and I'm not going to prescribe what they need to realize, but I think it's coming. And I think people are processing, we're still going through the, um, the actual event itself. But I think now, you know, after it's all over and we all hit the, hit the bricks and hit the street and we're, we gather together again. Uh, I think it's going to be a bacchanalia of ideas. (laughs) I think.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see a, sea change in, in our, uh, appreciation and commitment for those who have to give to those who have not. And that's just, it's a religious maxim that is completely ignored. Well, and
0: Yeah, right. Well, again, it gets back to that core idea of seeing the the you in them. Right. Yeah.
1: And And, not just being completely greedy, but unfortunately, the human society is set up that those who are least spiritually aware and those who are greediest and and, uh, most temporarily powerful rise to the top. You know, you don't rise to the top because of your spiritual power or your your, uh, caring or your intelligence. You rise... By demagoguery, and you demagogue, you know, a bunch of people who are easy to demagogue. Let's put it that way.
0: The the word in Gnosticism, right, is demiurge. So there's this god of the world, not Satan, but this sort of god of the world who is this bit of a trickster uh, and has us believing it and worshiping it. But it's not the final. Not the real god. The and real god. the
1: real god is the divine naught or kind of the... Mm. The energy, or what I mean, in that in Gnosticism, the real God is a formless, shapeless power, right? Something to that effect. I'm not. I'm not totally up
0: on it, but uh, yeah, right. This has been a really fun talk. I feel like we could go for for a lot longer. We are kind of winding down here, Tom. Uh, so when we last left your adventures, you were in Spain. <laughs> Uh, And what was it like to return? What years were you there? I think you told me, but when were you there?
1: 1992 to 1995.
0: And you came back to the United States. What was that like? Was it a crash landing? Did you feel comfortable?
1: Uh, I guess I was ready to get back. I mean, I was living essentially illegally. I didn't, I never got a visa. You know, you could do that as an American because they're just like, look at your passport. It's American passport. But I mean, I was illegal the whole time. I was there on tourist visas, so I would go in and out of the country. Hmm. um i was ready to get back and i was like i felt like the work i had to do had more to do with this culture in terms of i developed this kind of mystical ideas and i wanted to come back and and just kind of try to influence society to the extent a painter could and and with the ideas. so i thought it was the right place for me um to be though there was a much greater appreciation for visual art in spain than here there's no question about that why do you think that is Oh, because we're just about one thing. We're about money. I mean, you know, I would go to a cocktail party in Spain and I'd say, I'm a painter. And they would say, what are you working on? And when I went to a cocktail party here and said, I'm a painter, they would say, why? How much money do you make? And seriously, what do you do?
0: Yeah, I can relate.
1: Profoundly different.
0: It's like that. It's the difference between being a playwright in London and being a playwright anywhere in the United
1: States. Except New
0: York. uh, To a degree to it it depends. I
1: found New York respects art than any other place I've ever been in the states.
0: Yeah. New York New York is definitely like as close as you're going to get, for sure. Yeah. Yes. For for what I've seen. Yeah, everyone everyone knows that you've got to make that
1: money because there is no net. There's no net. Right. Yeah. And, and the state support for the arts in Europe. Yes, I mean, indeed. Every bank had a beautiful gallery. Right. Every bank underwrote a beautiful gallery and underwrote grants and, I mean, literally attached to the bank. I showed yes. them these banks and they felt it was a social responsibility. A bank. I mean, like Citibank, you know. Yeah, they're not
0: They're not wrong. You should support those things. Otherwise, it ends up being just an endless sea of Kardashians from sea to shining sea. Of, Apparently, that's what we want. I guess. I, I, I You know, I, I don't know a thing. For, you know, I don't really know a anything about a Kardashian or not, but wouldn't Maybe that be a nice?
1: Yeah.
0: I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get my booker to, to get one of them. <laughs> What's get the easiest Kardashian, Kardashian to get? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm, um, but I am glad to to speak with a, a painter and a, and a playwright uh, and a, and a, you know, and a, and a pal of mine. And we're talking about mysticism. Uh, I guess to, to kind of uh, wrap it up, if you could tell, I guess maybe a young person, uh, an artist, someone who's thinking about creating art, how to bring in some sort of a mystic notion into their practice, uh, without extending the podcast for another hour. Uh, what would you What would you tell someone?
1: I would say read some. Now, now you you know you mentioned Gerda, Jeff, and Crowley, and these guys are early twentieth century. Um, they were interpreting the kind of things. Uh, that I'm talking about but I would say start by reading some Sufi tales and just seeing what it says to you just don't don't even let intuition be your guide. don't you know do a portrait in a funny way like Alex what's his face does or you know but just read some of this stuff um starting with Sufi tales is the best place to start and then just uh see how it speaks to you and um see if you want to interpret you illustrate you want to interpret if you want to do it by feeling but just think about it, and think about your role as an artist, because historically the role of an artist is much, much more profound than it is considered today in America. I mean, if you and 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 read people talking about the arts who respect the arts, great mystics or uh, you know Wendell Berry or Thomas Merton, who feel that art has a fundamental role to play in the spiritual society and the spiritual health of humanity, and steep yourself in that instead of worrying about the marketplace, but. If you don't worry about the marketplace, you might not get into the marketplace. So, I mean, it's always a a fine line. It's like in theater we talk about, you know, if you want to follow your own voice, that's great, but you might never be produced. (laughs) Might write a beautiful play. But you know, so I, these are very difficult choices.
0: I think if you emphasize the the guiding star of the first set of things you talked about, the market and all the rest will come if it's meant to come. And I think uh, obviously it's easy to stay uh, say, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a company of my own and I'm I'm doing okay. Uh, yeah, it's tough. You you know, you, how do you tell someone who's working forty hours a week and ha- you know helping to raise children and all the rest yeah just follow your passion just write. uh you know just write. but i do think that the the er impulse people read that if it's coming from that that place of must it has to happen if out of your yourself you know there and you're trying to communicate trying to cross the transom this distance between everyone uh again finding the finding the you in them in your work uh there's something to that. That's I think that's a better place to start. Then, like ah, you know, I wonder how do I get a play that they're gonna love? Yeah, uh, you know, you can't
1: yeah. start there if you want yeah. to write. Yeah. I mean, a real artist doesn't do that. But I think it's 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 still it's a, it's a tough and frustrating and difficult conversation because I believe in art. Every artist wants an audience. Yeah, I don't yes. believe anybody creates. You know, I have friends who are not artists who say, oh, well, why do you care if anybody sees you this? Or why do you care if they read you that? And I mean, they can't understand they have normal jobs and everybody cares what they do. But I believe every artist is creates because they, they do fundamentally want an audience. And I think these are tough things, tough decisions, especially in our culture where, you know, influencers, whatever that even means, has two million followers. And then you find some artists you love and it's like, oh, they have one show and you know, 30 <laughs> followers on Instagram. Right.
0: Right. For sure. I think about that quite often. This, yeah, it's
1: difficult. A, I series mean, I, of,
0: yeah, a series of pratfalls without even really any artistry gets 8 million views. This right. person over here uh, finishes their graduate program in Berlin and comes back and they're working at a coffee shop. Uh, uh, it's difficult. It's hard to know. Um, and of course, those algorithms are so pernicious and they're just going to – that's that uh, uh, Tower of Babel. Uh, that's that right. ancient Babylonian noise. Uh, and I'm not, not discounting it either. There's room there. And and the art of the the art of the future is not going to look like the art of the 20th century going into this century either. Uh,
1: you know, it's funny. I just put this in my book. Where can I find it? Um, basically, uh, art will never be reborn except from amidst a general anarchy. It can only be solitary obscure and without an echo. That's Simone Weil, Simone Vay was a 20th century uh, mystic. Um, and they do, they they just they really think a lot about creativity and what it means, and I think as an artist, if you, can, if you can rest in those values, you can create beautiful personal art, but then there is this whole other conversation you're gonna have to have with yourself and with other people. I'm just, I'm just acknowledging that. Of course,
0: without a doubt. Well, so winding down, Tom, again, remind me, where can people find you?
1: Um well they can find my personal work at tomblock.com, T O M B L O C K dot com, and then uh, the Art Festival, which we have two calls for uh, two calls open right now if people want to check it out and apply for our literary award or, or our festival is ihraf.org dot O R G.
0: Great. And I'm Kevin Kautzman. This is the Get This Podcast. I have one more question for you, Tom, before we leave. Getthispodcast.com. Again, we're taking donations. If you want to support independent media, I think I have the subscription set to like $2.50 for the minimum a month. Uh, It's half a coffee. Uh, support that, get a headshot from, uh, Peniel Colada, the funky kind of psychedelic thing. If you want write a note, we'll, we'll read the note on the show if it's appropriate. Uh, again, that's at getthispodcast.com. We're at all the places you can find podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google play. If you like what you're hearing, leave us five stars, uh, leave a review. I'm, uh, you know, I'm very active on Twitter. The link is through the, uh, through the website. Um, Tom. Thanks for being a frequent guest on the show. I want to do this again with you. It's, it's a lot of fun. I always get something out of it. You mentioned the Sufi mystics, uh, the Sufi, what is it? The Sufi stories, right? Yeah. All right. And, uh, so that, that quite moved you. What is it about those stories? And do you recall one that, that, that would be a sort of succinct punchline to the episode?
1: Yeah, I'll just, I'll, just give, I'll just paraphrase this one. It's called When the Waters Were Changed. So one gay, um, someone came down, an angel came down and said, on such and such a date, we're going to change all the water in the world, and the people who drink the water are going to go insane. And so one guy listens, and he takes all the fresh water and hides it in a cave. And sure enough, on that day and that time, the waters change. Everybody ignores him. They all drink the water. And he comes down. And they're all insane however they're all in agreement and they all think he's insane so he keeps going back to his water but he's now got no friends no one will talk to him no one will say anything to him he's considered a nuts so finally he's like you know what i i can't take this social isolation which we can relate to um i'm going to just drink the water that is now running in the streams and he drinks it and then he's looked at as a man who went insane who was miraculously cured so the Sufi tales. Yeah, they, they're very thoughtful, but they had another role, too, because when Sufis pray, they literally divest themselves of their ego. It's like an acid trip and much more intense. They would tell these stories around campfires to help them return to themselves and they would discuss them and what they meant. So these stories are often it's not like a punchline. That one is a little bit of a punchline, but they're quite thoughtful and they're quite unusual. They're not like Judeo-Christian. They're not. A, B, go to hell, go to heaven. They're more like, wow, gee, you know, what's the point? Do I want to be like everybody else and be accepted or do I want to be insane and completely alone? And, you know, and there's a lot of the stories that are like that. They're extremely thoughtful and, and well-written. Those were, they were great writers.
0: The great Tom Block. Tom, thanks for coming on to the show. Let's do thanks it again you. soon, buddy. Okay. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. Take care of yourself. All right.